If you have a Bible, I want you to join me in the Gospel of Luke and the 10th chapter, Luke chapter 10. Our uh, conviction as a church family is that this is the Word of God, and all Scripture is profitable. And so uh, our habit here as, um, on these Sunday mornings is we study through books of the Bible. I've got a firm conviction that the Holy Spirit uh, inspired the Word of God, and He knew what He was doing when He laid it out in the way that He laid it out. It cannot be improved upon. And so what we seek to do is to study books of the Bible from beginning to, to end. Now, now, I pray and seek the, the face of the Lord as best I know how and say, what books should we study? And, 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 and uh, we, we've been in the Gospel of Luke because I believe what we need more than anything else is to see Jesus clearly. And the Gospel of Luke gives us Jesus clearly. Now, what happens is if you commit to that and study through, that means you don't skip any verses. And so what can happen is that you get to, to texts like the one we're going to get to this morning that, that uh, might not be your first draft pick. But we say we want to know the full counsel of God because this text this morning speaks about something that our culture kind of doesn't want to, want to listen to. The, the topic here, particularly early on, is the topic of judgment, righteous judgment of God. And that's something that uh, the culture we live in, uh, we don't want to hear anything about that. But we don't skip verses. We, we go verse by verse. And there's been something that's been building as we've been studying Luke's gospel that this morning we get to a text and it sort of erupts. So before we get to the eruption, I want you to see what's been building. And, and I've just told you to go to Luke 10, I know. But now I'm telling you to go back to, to Luke, chapter, uh, Luke chapter 4. And I just want you to read a couple of verses with me that give some context to what Jesus is going to say in Luke chapter 10. Now, all the way back in Luke 4, we've studied these texts, so we're not going to do it in great detail. But, for example, Luke chapter 4, verse 28. This is when Jesus has gone back to Nazareth to preach. He's in his hometown, in his home synagogue. He gets the scroll of Isaiah out, reads Isaiah's prophecy and says today this is fulfilled in your hearing and then he gives some application essentially says to his audience they need to repent verse 28 when they heard these things all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff and they were as angry as they've ever been And their plan was actually to throw him off the cliff. And then interestingly enough, we just read in verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. Go to Luke chapter 6, verse 11. This is on another Sabbath, a different Sabbath. And on this Sabbath, he he heals. And at the end of it, he has a confrontation with the Pharisees. Now look, look, look what it says in verse 11. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. I, I didn't read to you Luke 5 after the occurrence in Nazareth. He would withdraw to desolate places to pray, Luke 5, verse 16. Go, go with me now to, to Luke chapter uh, 8. In verse 36. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. This is right after Jesus has healed Legion, who's 
who, who was possessed by many demons. Then all the people, this is the third time, by the way, we heard that phrase. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So they got into the boat and returned. And then one more, Luke chapter 9, verse 51 When they drew near for him, excuse me, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Are we seeing it? The pattern here and town after town and village after village and place after place. Jesus goes, he heals, he teaches, but in many instances, They want to drive him out. They ask him to depart. They don't want anything to do with him. You remember what the Gospel of John says. He came to his own, but his own received him not. Now, that's a little bit of background, a little bit of context. to when we get to our text this morning, we'll see now Jesus has a response to all these things that have been going on. So let's pray together, and we'll study these verses together this morning. Father, thank you for the Word of God. We believe it is profitable We believe all Scripture is God-breathed. And so as we've turned to these different passages of Scripture, we've not just been reading words, we've been reading the Word of God. And what's indicated from the Scripture is that in Jesus' public ministry on several different occasions, people were filled with fury against Him. They wanted Him to, to leave them alone. And they wanted nothing to do with Him. And Father, that remains the case today. We still live in a world where many people don't want anything to do with Jesus. So Father, help us to read these words this morning soberly. To have attentive hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, a little bit of background, and, and now two more passages of Scripture, and then we'll get going on this morning's text. But, but one more, Luke chapter 9, just, just so we see that this isn't the first time Jesus has said this when we get to Luke 10. In Luke chapter 9, verse 1, it says, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And then Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, And sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as a lamb in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Here we go. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this... 
that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, we've been reading through Luke's gospel, many instances where he's not received. And not only is he's not received, in some instances, they, they literally want to drive him out of town, throw him off a cliff, beg him to depart. And he said, now, on two occasions, wherever that happens, shake the dust off your feet and, and go. And what we're about to read, my friends, is Jesus doing exactly what he said to do where they don't receive you. He's about to shake the dust off his feet. We'll read Luke chapter 10, verses 13, all the way now to verse 24. Here's the word of God. Verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Now the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then returning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that, that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Well, in this text, we have a people who are left really with no reason to rejoice, number one. Secondly, we've got a group of people who Jesus corrects them in what they ought to rejoice over. And and then third, we are given great insight into what Jesus himself rejoices over. Let's start in Luke chapter 10, verse 13, with a people with, with no reason to rejoice. Now, Jesus uses a word to this to these cities That's the last word you ever really want God to speak to you. It's that first word there in verse 13. Woe, W-O-E, woe to you, Chorazin. Now, Jesus mentions three Jewish cities, and he contrasts them to three Gentile cities, right? He he mentions there uh, in verse 12, Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. Those are the three Gentile cities. And then he references three Jewish cities, Chorazin, uh, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. Now, uh, Capernaum is Peter and Andrew's hometown, right? That, that's where they're from, and that's where Jesus has done the, uh, the most of his ministry. Capernaum's been his um, hometown, if you will, for, for, for a little while now. All these miracles that we've been studying in, in Luke's gospel are in a region called Galilee, and Capernaum, Bethsaida, um, uh, and Chorazin are towns and villages in the region Jesus has been. It's where he's been teaching. It's where he's been healing. It's where he's been uh, ministering. And then we're given references. You've probably heard of Sodom, that wicked city in the book of Genesis that God wiped off from the face of the earth. And then there's three other city, or two other cities, rather, Tyre and Sidon. Now, you might not know where those cities are, but those are Phoenician cities located on the coast. And, and can I just tell you, in those days, if you were a Jewish person, 
There are three cities that you would, that you would highlight as the three most wicked places on earth. You know what the three places, cities would be? You know, you know them already, right? Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. There, there was a saying in that culture, and you've heard Jesus use it himself twice, to shake the dust off your feet. Shake the dust off your feet. Now, in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, John MacArthur says, um, to shake the dust off one's feet was a traditional Jewish gesture. When a Jew returned from traveling in a Gentile country, he would shake the dust from that land off his clothes and sandals as a symbolic gesture of shaking off the pagan influences that would contaminate the Jewish people's lives and land. The act became an expression of disdain and rejection. So to shake the dust off the feet and turning away is in their culture, you're saying, I'm done with that place. I don't want to be associated with that place. And their mentality was, hey, if you're going to shake the dust off your feet from anywhere, it'd be somewhere like Sodom. It'd be somewhere like uh, Tyre and Sidon. These are idolatrous cities. These are wicked cities. These are disgusting cities. These are cities we don't want our children to go to. We're not traveling there. They're full of pagans. They're full of false gods. We are the righteous and the pure now you look in luke chapter 10 and what does jesus say he says something to those original ears and that original audience would have been utterly shocking he says it's tyre and sidon and even sodom itself will be better off in the judgment than capernaum than bethsaida than corazine capernaum and bethsaida these are cities of Nice people, moral people, people that don't, that don't associate with the practices found in Sodom and Tyre and Sidon. But Jesus says, woe to you. I just, we just got to pause just for a moment for, for us to realize how offensive this would have been to these citizens. Jesus says he's worked and taught. I mean, for, for, for a moment, can you think of how privileged Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin have been. The Son of God has come in the flesh and He's dwelt among them. He's taught them. He's healed them. He's performed miracles in them. But they've not... Here's the key word. Here's the key word here from the Gospel. I want you to see it for yourself. He says, verse 13, If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have what? Repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus says it will be more tolerable in the judgment for those wicked cities than these Jewish villages. This is Peter's hometown, Andrew's hometown that he's talking about. Now why? Why would it be worse for these towns than the notoriously wicked Sodom? Tyre and Sidon, because these residents of Capernaum and Chorazin had unparalleled access to Jesus. They'd seen him, they'd heard him, they'd watched him. Many of them had even been healed by them, by him. But very few of them had repented and believed in him. Now, we've been studying through Luke chapters 8, 9, and 10. Nobody in these cities has overtly 
persecuted Jesus. They've not mocked him. They've not spit on him. They've not ridiculed him. They didn't even, like in Nazareth, try to run him out of town. No, they just tolerated him. They just got familiar with him. Somehow they got sort of comfortable around him. Jesus had come to Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin, and in the end, all they wanted from him was physical healings and some help, but they had no desire to submit to him, to repent, and to believe. Now, in uh, the weekend after Thanksgiving in 2000, I proposed marriage to Julie, and I had planned it for a quite a little while. won't go into all the details. I'll spare you all those details, but I'd saved up some money and bought a ring, and then the big moment came, and I got down on my knee, and I proposed marriage to her. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Now, the, the truth of the matter is she said yes, right? And uh, th- that's what happened, but can you imagine if I'd gotten down on my knee and poured out my heart and said, would you, would you marry me? And she kind of looked at the ring, and she just said, mm, no. No, but can you go make me a sandwich? <laughs> and, and by the way, do you mind if I keep this ring? I think I might want to pawn it. A little cash from my pocket. Well, what do you think my response would have been? <laughs> no, that's not okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to go make a sandwich. You've, re- you've rejected me. I came here in humility at great cost. To, to offer something, an invitation to you. No, I'm not going to go make a sandwich and you could do No, no, no. You'd, you'd say there, there would have come a moment where, well, you would use these terms, shake the dust off my feet. I've been rejected. That's what's going on here. Jesus has come. He's the Messiah. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And what they said is, well, well can you heal our blindness? And, and, and can you give us something to eat, the feeding of the 5,000? And then can you leave us alone? And my friends, I have to tell you that, that that mentality is alive and well in the United States of America in 2014 right now. Jesus, would you provide some physical blessings for us and then leave us alone? And Jesus' response, you've got to hear him, woe to you. Woe to you. Woe, woe that Greek word, it's not so much, a, so much a word of vengeance as it is a, as a word of anguish. I came to, to redeem you and all you wanted was these physical healings and I came to offer you so much more the key word again here in this text in these verses is repent they want to receive the blessings but not repent the word God always uses in response to the mentality we'll take the blessings but we don't want to submit to you the word he always uses in response to that is is woe to you woe to you Chorazin If that mentality exists in our day, woe to you, Rocky Mount. You have access to the Word of God in an unparalleled manner, right? I mean, many of us us don't have one of these. We have multiple copies of these. We, We have different translations of this Word. We have unparalleled access to the Word of God. And yet, oftentimes, all we want is Him to bless us physically and then leave us alone. And for this to have no bearing on the lives we were going to live anyway. So we have to ask the question, have you... Have you received and submitted to Christ? Or do you merely tolerate Him, been accustomed to Him, used to having Him kind of around? The word God uses in response to that mentality is, Woe! Woe to you! The people of Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida 
would have been so quick to point out the wickedness of Sodom and Tyre and Sidon and said, we'll never be like them. Our children are never going to go to those places. Those cities of outright sin and depravity. And Jesus audaciously states it will be worse for them. Their self-righteous pride will take them down to Hades. Jesus is in the midst right now of, he's not stepping on their toes. (laughs) He's challenging them face to face and eye to eye because they have religious pride oozing out of their pores. As a matter of fact, we'll look at next week. Jesus is going to tell them a story about a man who really submits and follows God. And you know who he's called? The good Samaritan. Now, you know that story. Those those words roll roll, roll off your tongue. But to that audience who believed that the Samaritans were the most wicked, filthy, impure, (laughs) unlikable, unholy people in the earth, Jesus is going to tell a story. And the hero of the story is the good Samaritan. For them, those two words were incompatible. You see, their hypocrisy and their pride had hardened themselves to the point that Jesus himself dwelt among them and they would not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida. So the first is that we see a people here who have really no reason to rejoice. In the end, what is there to rejoice over? All that's left is is judgment. And then secondly, we hear in the next section, see in the next section, of people who have reason to rejoice, they just have to rejoice for the right reasons. Remember our context. Jesus has sent out uh, these, these messengers two by two, and they've gone out and proclaimed the kingdom. And it says in verse 70, 17, the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus has sent them out, and now they're returning from their short-term mission trip, if you, if you will. And they're excited. They're thrilled. They're fired up. Now, the last time this happened... Go back with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 10. Uh, the first time Jesus sent anybody out, it was the 12 apostles. And they went out, and they came back in Luke chapter 9, verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned that they followed him and welcomed him and spoke to him of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. And then, you know, we won't go back into all the details, but you remember that Luke, uh, Jesus sent the 12 out, then they came back, and they, they were excited about all that they had done. And then right after that is misstep after misstep after misstep. They want the crowd sent away. They argue with one another. They're proud. They're arrogant. They criticize other people in the ministry who are not with them. And then they want to burn down a Samaritan village. That, that's after the first mission trip. And so I think when this group comes back, Jesus is very quick to give a correction. Uh, because of pride, many of us are not easily correctable, are we? Um, and, and so I want us to be able to receive a correction from Jesus if it needs to be received today. They come back excited. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Jesus is in the midst of bringing redemption And he sent these messengers out. And he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I mean, when the people of God are submitted to Christ in the word of God and go out in the power of the spirit, this is what happens. Satan falls like lightning. He's got no defense against it. I mean, it's a victorious army that Jesus has sent out. And he says, I've I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. And I have to tell you, in those days, those, uh, those were symbolic of evil. Scorpions 
and serpents. I think Jesus is using symbolic language, okay, my friends? So you're not ever going to come up here and find me handling a serpent or a scorpion. He's using symbolic language. And then he says, nevertheless, I tell you this. My friends, if you want to rejoice over something, rejoice. Look what he says, that your name, your names are written in heaven. The messengers went out and pushed the forces of wickedness back. It was a sudden victory. It was a glorious victory. And then Jesus redirects the reason for their rejoicing. Now, they're excited the demons are subject to us. And, and we remember there was a scene earlier in Luke chapter 9 when they confronted a demon and they were not able to cast it out. Remember that? They faced a demon and, and, and they did their best and, and, and yet Jesus comes along and says, well, this kind of demon can only be cast out by fasting and praying. And now the demons are subject. Now they feel like, okay, maybe we're getting over the hump a little bit. But Jesus says, don't even rejoice at that so much that your, that your names are written in heaven. I want you to peek behind the curtain with me into heaven for a few moments in Revelation chapter 5. So, Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5. Before we read that, can can I just ask you a simple question? What is it that you you do rejoice in? Simply, what is it that excites you and thrills you and gets gets you fired up? I can remember in April of 1993, I got really, really excited about something. Uh, the, the University of North Carolina, for the first time in my life, won the college basketball national championship. You might, re- you might remember this, and I grew up a big, a big uh, Carolina fan, and it was particularly enjoyable because in April of 1993, this other college had won consecutive national championships in 1991 and 1992. I was in eighth grade at the time, and, and back in those days, uh, especially in the school I went to, you kind of lived and died with your team. I mean, there'd be days you wouldn't even want to go to school. I mean, if, you, if Carolina lost to Duke, I didn't want to go to school the next day because that's what everybody was going to talk about. And, and, and so this night, Carolina, you remember Chris Weber called the time? We'll go, go in all, okay. Carolina won the national championship, and I could not wait to get to school tomorrow. As a matter of fact, there were a couple of Duke fans, and they'd had their fun in 1991 and 1992. 1993 is going to be a little bit of payback, rejoicing rejoicing over that. And you know how long that lasted? I mean, I got the t-shirt and everything. It lasted about, you know, I'm a big fan, about three weeks. And then it just kind of faded away. And then the next year, they lost to Boston College in the second. Okay. We, we often build our joy on things that are very, very temporary. And you see what Jesus is saying? If you're going to rejoice, rejoice in this, that your name, your name is written in heaven. Now, how did your name get there? Because the demons are cast out? In, no, no, no. That's not how they got there. They got there because Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem and go to the cross and be crucified on your behalf to die for your sin. Your name's written there on the basis of somebody else's actions, not your own. You, you don't have a pen with that kind of ink, my friends, Right? Your name's written in blood, and it's not even your own blood. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your name is in heaven, not because of your own good works, not because of you cast out a demon, not because you traveled to the village and preached in his name, none of that. Your name's written there because Jesus came. 
Your name's in heaven because Jesus left heaven and came to earth, went to the cross, was crucified for your sin. He says, if you're going to rejoice, rejoice in this. And I've got to tell you, when you start to think in that terms, uh, the Carolina victory is not that great, right? It's not that big a deal. Win or lose, does it really matter? I'll tell you what matters. It matters that when this heart of mine stops beating and these lungs stop taking in oxygen and putting out carbon, when that day comes, my name's still there, and I'm going to be there with him. Revelation chapter 5 gives us a picture of what heaven's rejoicing about. I'll go on and give you a hint. It's not a basketball game. It's not a football game. It's, well, let's read it together. We'll see what it is. Revelation chapter 5. This is the Apostle John writing. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Can you imagine how this must have heard? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Not Moses, not Noah, not Abraham, not David, not Ruth, not Esther, not Peter, not Paul. None of them were worthy. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. You want something to rejoice in, my friends. That's something to rejoice in. You want to say something, amen, and build your life on. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. You have a conquering king as your savior. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Well, wait a minute. I thought he was a lion. Now he's a lamb. Which one is he? with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are with the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. Your blood, by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Thousands and thousands. He can't even number. Myriads is a Greek word that says, I can't even quite count that high. And they're saying with one voice, here's what they're saying in heaven. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped it's a small glimpse behind the curtain in heaven what are they doing in heaven right now wringing their hands overly concerned with what's going on in earth wondering who won the ball game wondering how this is going to work you get a sense, don't you, don't you, my, they're not ever going to get over this. These elders are not up there saying, well, what time is it? How many more time are we going to do this? Is it about time to go? Heaven 
has never, is never, will never get over what Jesus has done. They see it clearly. They understand it fully. They fully comprehend it. And so often, unfortunately, what we do is is we set our eyes and minds on little itty-bitty things. Not that they're not important, but just small things in life. That's why Paul says, if you've been raised with him, what's he say? Seek or fix your mind on things above. And things above, you know what they're saying? Worthy is the land. They just keep falling down. They just keep worshiping. They didn't ever get over it. I have to ask you, did you, did you, have you gotten over it? It's got to a point in your life where, yeah, yeah, I've, I've read that text. I know I'm just kind of over it, though. We're a get-over-it culture. Whatever's popular now, it's not going to be popular in five years. I mean, just look at the fashions from 40 years ago, right? We just got over it, and we move on to this, move on to this, move on to this. Woe to anybody who sees him and hears him and gets over it. Woe to him. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Now, even the disciples come back. The demons are subject in, to, to, to us in your name. And Jesus says, I'll tell you this. Now, Jesus has come from heaven. He knows what's going on there. He says, if you're going to rejoice, rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. So first, we see a group of people who have no reason to rejoice. Those who are familiar with Jesus but not submitted to Jesus. Moral, self-righteous people. And Jesus says, woe to you. And then he even has to correct the people who, who have reason to rejoice. His messengers, his people People who count all loss. He even has to correct them and say, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then, and then isn't this great? We, we get a glimpse in what makes Jesus rejoice. And that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. We got Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they're all together. And what are they doing? They're rejoicing. You know what I find is unfortunately often the case is some people think God's in a bad mood some people think God's just up there just kind of uh, growling up there can you believe everything that's going on you look at Jesus when he's in the Holy Spirit he's with the Father he's rejoicing can I tell you something there's no joyful being in all creation than God and if, you, if you've got this mentality that God's grumpy, frustrated, and disapp- he's rejoicing. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. What things? These things. These things. Names written in heaven. These things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What is he talking about? These 70, these 70 that have been sent out in Jesus' name, they're not an impressive bunch of people. They're not this prestigious group of folks. They're not some of these delegations that are going to Jerusalem or going to Rome and they're fancy outfits. These are a ragtag group of messengers. And that's what Jesus is saying is the things of the kingdom have been revealed to the humble, not necessarily to the powerful and influential. These little children. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately. He gets them together privately. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see 
and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus rejoices over repentance and faith. Jesus rejoices when people repent and believe. We're just a few chapters away from Luke 15. You know what the whole theme of that is? Heaven rejoices. Not over a ball game, not over this. Over Heaven rejoices when sinners repent and believe. This is, look what he says, this is the Father's gracious will. If you've been saved, you know how you've been saved? By grace. It's not because your spiritual eyesight is so keen. It's because God's given you grace to see Christ clearly. Without Christ, without repenting, without believing, all our rejoicing is shallow and temporary. But, let's flip it around, with Christ, but because of Christ, all our grieving, all of our mourning, all of our suffering is temporary. All of it's temporary. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm pretty confident that there are a number of people in the room right now who you're going through the grind of life right now. Jesus said himself, in this world you will have trouble. You will You will. When it comes to trouble, here's where all of us are. Either headed for it, in it, or just coming out of it. That's it. There's nobody here that's immune from trouble. Nobody here that's immune from bad news. In your family, with your finances, at your job, so on and so forth. Whatever the specifics are, all of us deal with the suffering that comes from being in a fallen world. But here's some good news. Jesus has come to the fallen world, and he's begun the process of redemption. The whole creation groans out, longing for redemption. I, I only gave you part of the verse. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. You know what the next two words are? But rejoice. But rejoice. Here's why. Because I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Worthy is the Lamb who, here's the the word from Revelation, conquered. Conquered. Now, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, rejoice over those who repent. And, and then Jesus has to tell them, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Oh, what Capernaum had seen. Oh, what Bethsaida and Chorazin had, had seen. Demons cast out. 5,000 fed. And yet they did not and did not believe. I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see. Oh, what David would have given to see this day. He'd seen it by faith. <laughs> oh, what Jeremiah would have seen. Oh, to see the Messiah go into Jerusalem. He prophesied about it. Oh, what Abraham to see this day. They saw it by faith. But now here are the disciples, these fishermen, who get to see it for themselves. And you know what Jesus says about you, about me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Some people say seeing is believing. Some of these scriptures indicate that believing is actually seeing. Well, bring it to a conclusion. We've looked at, we've looked at three categories, if that's the right word, of when it comes to rejoicing. First, first are a group of people who have no reason to rejoice because what Jesus says to them is, is woe, woe to you. What's a profit of man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What is a profit of man if Jesus Christ himself comes nearby but you don't believe? What's a profit of man if Sunday after Sunday after Sunday you listen to the word of God but you don't believe? You say, is that possible? Absolutely it's possible. Here's what Ephesians 1 says. When you heard 
the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed it, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says. You know what, you know what he, he's saying? You can hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it and not believe it. That's the citizens of Chorazin. That's the citizens of Bethsaida. That's the citizens of Capernaum. And I think there are a lot of people in America, there are probably a lot of people in Rocky Mount who have heard it and heard it and heard it, but they've never truly believed it. And Jesus says, woe to you. There's no real reason to rejoice. Secondly, are people who do believe. They have submitted. They're after this Luke 10, 1 type people. After this, they've forsaken all things. They've left and forsaken an old way of life. They've put their hand to the plow, and they don't want to look back. They want to follow Christ. But he says, even to them, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Is there something other than your name being written in the book of life that you find your joy in? I have to tell you, we, we have to fight this. We have to fight this. Where's my primary joy? Because here's the, here's the reality. Wherever you find your joy, do you know what you're doing to that, to that place? You're giving it glory. We use this phrase all the time, don't we, in church? I want to glorify God with my life. That's a churchy word, isn't it? I mean, we don't use that anywhere else. I want to give something glory. I want to glorify. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, let's just make it simple and put it this way. You glorify whatever you rejoice in, period. For some people, that's grandchildren. For some people, it's your job. For some people, like me in the eighth grade, it's the University of North Carolina basketball team. Rejoice at it. You bring in glory. To, hey, did you see the game? Can you believe what happened? Chris Weber called that timeout in the Tar Heels. Rejoice. Now, <laughs> here's the interesting thing. Most everything else you rejoice in requires you to also diminish something else in return. Of, for, for example, if I rejoice in the Tar Heels, you know what I've got to diminish? I've got to diminish Duke, I've got to run them to the ground. In the end, the only thing you can re- rejoice in that doesn't cause that effect is Christ. It's everybody, everybody gets to come. Everybody gets to come. Now, it works the other way. If you rejoice in something other than God, you know what you're doing? You, you're diminishing his name. And here's what the Old Testament prophet said of God. Here's God's speak. I will not give my glory to another. I came near to you, Capernaum. came near to you, Bethsaida. And and fishing businesses were there, getting glory. (laughs) And families were getting there. And Jesus came near, and they rejected him. And he said, woe to you. Woe to you. So where 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 do you put your joy? What do you glorify with your life? Same question, really. And then last one, we see what Jesus rejoices in. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He's rejoicing that these humble, oftentimes forgotten from the world's perspective, people have come to salvation. Is that what you rejoice in? First of all, okay, put it this way. If you rejoice in your name being written in heaven, you know what you get great joy out of? Other names getting there too. Uh, other Other names get written there too. A closing question for you. It's real simple. It's this one. Is your name written in heaven? Is your name written? I mean, think of all the places you've seen your name written. I remember when I was in school, you get that lined paper. You remember this? Like the third grade, you're just learning to write. Write your name up there. And then you had to learn to write it in cursive. Is anybody still writing cursive? I don't know. Okay. 
You've seen your name on bank statements. You've seen your name in letters. You've seen your name on Facebook. You've seen your name, seen your name, seen your name. But is your name written in heaven? Again, how does it get there? Not by you earning your spot there. It gets there because Christ took your spot on the cross, crucified for your sin. You want, you want some good news? If your name's written there, heaven doesn't actually even have an eraser. Doesn't get there and then, ah, no, Brandon had a bad day. Let's, they're not some secretary up there getting emails. All right, is his name there? Here's good news. If your name's there, it's there eternally. Because it was put there by Christ, by his blood. How does it get there? By grace, you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one may boast. Do you know what the opposite of boasting is? Rejoicing. You boast in your name or rejoice that your, your name's written in heaven. Let's stand together. We're going to pray together. It's right now and right here where we need some serious help. That's why we're going to pray before we do anything else. Only the Holy Spirit can bring a person to the point where they understand their need to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the limitations we face as ambassadors of Christ. Now, I like, you know, Adrian Rogers says, plenty of people can preach the gospel better than I can, but nobody can preach a better gospel. There are plenty of people who could stand here today and have done a much better job of articulating and preaching and giving example to, to this message. But as clear as I know how to say it, there, there's two ways. Either those who rejoice that their names are written in heaven or those who are under the woe of Christ. You've been brought near, but you've not believed. Woe to you. I want to ask you to bow your heads. I want to have a gospel invitation. This is not the only way. This is not the only way you could publicly declare faith in Christ. But it is a way. And so that's what the invitation is going to be today. That Jesus, from the scripture, has clearly declared. I was with people who heard and heard and heard and heard. But they did not believe. Woe to them. I've given you an opportunity to declare your faith in Christ for the first time. And, and you, you, may, you may have been around church all your life. Hey, the people of Capernaum have been around Jesus for a long time. But they didn't really believe in him. They'd seen his mighty works, but they'd not submitted to him. They'd heard, but they had not believed. And so I'm going to stand here at the front during this invitation. The invitation is wide open. And you say, I don't, I don't even know what I'd say. You don't have to know what to say. You just say, yeah, I think God's calling me to faith in Christ. And this time of invitation might be, not be where something's completely finalized. It might be where something's begun. We can begin the process of thinking through what the Bible says salvation is all about. But I want to give a sober warning. There is a day that Jesus shakes the dust off his feet. And if you do not respond in faith today and wait until it's too late, you will look back and you will say, I would have crawled under every pew to throw myself on the mercy of Christ. He has come for you. He has gotten down on his knees and said, everything that's required 
for you to have eternal life in me. I'm willing to pay it. Will you believe on me? Trust that I pay your sin debt. I'm crucified. I bear God's wrath. The invitation is open. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name that we hear the word of God clearly. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So I pray today if there be anyone here that's not submitted to the lordship of Christ. That you, by your grace, by your word, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, will open up their eyes to see the hope to which they've been called. And give them grace to respond in boldness. Give them grace to respond in willingness. Give them grace to respond in humility. Give them grace to respond eagerly. If we could just understand the, the opportunity that you've given us to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and have our names written in heaven. I pray for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ today that what they rejoice in is that their names are written. And help us to be a people who what we rejoice in is over the repentance of people who come to faith in Christ. Lead our time. We ask for the the direction and the leading of the Holy Spirit during these moments that Christ would get much glory. All we have is Christ. And praise his holy name, all we need is Christ. Lead our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.